welcome to episode 18 of Clearly KC, a podcast by the National Keratoconus Foundation, featuring information about life with keratoconus. I am your host, Dr. Melissa Barnett, and today we are going to discuss Cherish Eyesight and Vision and the Vision Tales Project. Dr. O2 founded Cherish Eyesight and Vision, a nonprofit that intersects public health and optometry to help address preventable blindness and vision impairment globally. In 2020, her remarkable contributions were recognized when she received the inaugural Rising Visionary Award from Prevent Blindness. Welcome to the Clearly KC podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. (laughs) So let's start. Please tell us a little bit about your childhood and why you chose a career in optometry. Sure. I grew up in Ghana, West Africa, and I immigrated to the United States for college. So right after high school, I moved to the United States. Now, I always wanted to be a doctor. And then when I was growing up, I was a malinger. (laughs) I faked eye problems. I did a lot of things with my eyes. And I recall that there was a female doctor who had operated on my dad for his pterygium. So now in hindsight, I think and feel that it's when it started. I chose to express my interest as a child by malingering. So that's how I feel like it all started. When I moved to the United States, I wanted a career in eye care. And I was initially very adamant that it had to be ophthalmology, in part because that is all that I knew. Growing up in Ghana, I did not hear much about optometry. And also, I wanted to do a lot of global health work and felt like if I did ophthalmology, I would not be limited on what I could do should I find myself anywhere else outside the United States. Life happened, and that seemed unattainable. So my mentor who is Dr. Shala Joslin. I'm not sure if you know her, but she's like big in the contact lens world. She works at UICI in Ear Infirmary, and she is medical necessary contact lens professional. Dr. Joslin was my mentor for a very long time. And so during my undergrad, I shadowed her a lot. I got a lot of experience under her mentorship. She and her husband intervened when I was trying to decide what to do after my undergraduate education. Something that I still remember up to today that resounds is the fact that they said you could still achieve all your career goals with optometry. So I went to optometry at the Ohio State College of Optometry, and this is actually the alma mater of Dr. Joslyn. So the story is longer than I am telling you, but I went to Ohio State because of Dr. Joslyn. Choosing optometry was mostly because I could achieve all my career goals and it didn't have to be ophthalmology. And the timing, age, time going on, life going on, I kind of like, okay, we're going to do optometry. And so that's how that happened. Well, that's wonderful. And then I understand you obtained a master's of public health Mm -hmm. from the University of Illinois. What, What did you hope to achieve with your public health training? Before I did the public health program, I had a summer research opportunities program, and that was what exposed me to public health. So once again, this was when I met Dr. Joslyn, who is an OD with a PhD in public health, specifically epidemiology and biostatistics. So under her mentorship, that was when I first learned 
about how to integrate public health and optometry. And an example that I have is there was an outbreak of acanthamoeba keratitis in Chicago back in 2010, 2011, and she kind of spearheaded the whole thing. So this was just a pure example of how her public health education became very beneficial to her as well as her patients where acanthamoeba is concerned. So I had that example to let me know that public health should not be separate from medical practice. And that integration actually helps us achieve better outcomes. So when I did my MPH, everything was still eye care. I was able to learn about public health. That was when I first got exposed to the ERITS data. I analyzed the ERITS data. I was able to look at um, disparities in eye diseases. I was able to implement a study for my capstone project back in Ghana, And then the study got accepted to academy, even before I started optometry school and other conferences. So these series of things, it it became evident to me how I could use these two different professions to complement each other. So when I was still trying to navigate, do I do optometry and ophthalmology, it was good to do public health in the interim. And so that was my mindset going into public health. At this point, I feel like I'm able to take care of populations. So in public health, we are looking at preventive care. We know that is beneficial in eye care. I would love for patients to go get their eye exam so that we can catch diseases sooner than later. So this is just an example of looking at things through a public health lens, lecturing, right? Now I feel like it is up to me to educate my colleagues how important public health is in our practice. I recall when I was doing my public health degree, We had so many conversations about diabetes, but the conversation stopped at gets into the PCP and taking your metformin. And because I'm an eye person, I'm like, okay, we have visual implications of this disease. So why are we not talking about the diabetic retinopathy and stopping at diabetes and getting medication for it? But now that I have that education, public health, when I'm looking at a patient who has diabetic retinopathy, I'm thinking about does this person live in a food desert? Okay, It's not just about eating healthy, but do they have access to those healthy foods? If they live in a food desert, that's a challenge that we need the public health world to address so that we can get good outcomes from treating the diabetic retinopathy. I feel like uh, I have the advantage of being able to think in a public health lens and realize that the person sitting in, in my chair has other social determinants that affects their eye health and not just the mere fact that they have an eye disease or condition. Hopefully that answers your question, but my MPH, well, I made sure it was all about eyes. And having done that before going to optometry school has helped me think in the public health lens and not just as a clinician. Hopefully that answers your question. Oh, definitely. That's fascinating. Did you hear that NPR story a few years ago about food deserts? Um, no, I did not. Oh, I would encourage that. It was absolutely amazing. Perhaps it was a local one uh-huh. here in the mm-hmm. Sacramento area in Northern mm-hmm. California, mm-hmm. but it was fascinating about relatively urban places mm-hmm. that are food deserts and right. people just can't get access. Yeah. yeah. So it was well done. Yeah. Okay. I think it's a huge problem because again, yes. if our main mode of addressing diabetes is to tell people to eat healthy, then we have to make sure that they have access to these foods. If you are trying to tell them to exercise, then we have to make sure that they have the green space in their neighborhoods 
to be able to exercise. Recognizing that public health is really broad and it is the public health that is responsible for these things, like good neighborhoods, healthy neighborhoods. And so we can work together to achieve our mutual goals. That is right on. So tell us about your nonprofit called Cherish Eyesight and Pubtometry, a word (laughs) that you use to describe the intersection of public health and optometry. Yes. The nonprofit came about late 2020, and that was right after the Prevent Blindness inaugural award. And that was because I wanted to be able to implement what I had suggested. So I wrote an essay and I had suggested that this is one way that we can address the future outlook of vision and eye health, which is a lot of chronic diseases, which means that a lot of aging eye diseases. And so how are we going to address it? The nonprofit came about and basically trying to intersect public health and optometry. So we have the project called the Vision Tales Project and basically using entertainment to tell real life implications of eye diseases in ways that the general public will easily understand it. The goal is to make these videos very short, very succinct, so that when somebody watches it or listens to it, at least they are getting one take-home message. It is not meant to be overwhelming. It is meant to entertain, but at the same time, drive drive home a key message. And so it's through Prevent Blindness that I came up with the nonprofit. And then the goal is to improve visual health literacy. Because when I was a student and I started seeing patients, there were so many patients, when you ask them, so why haven't you gone to the eye doctor? Most people would say, well, I don't have any symptoms or I have never thought about it. Eye care seems to be at the very lowest level of their priorities. But then nobody picks sites as a sense that they would be okay losing. So there's a lot of value for eyesight, but people do very little when it comes to their eyesight. And when it comes down to it, it's because they do not know about it. And so to me, vision health being a priority, we need to increase that literacy among the public so that hopefully if they know more, they will do better so that we don't find ourselves breaking bad news to people, especially bad news that could have been prevented. That's how that came about. And that's what I want to do with it, just to educate the public and hope that with improved literacy, people will make better decisions that we can diagnose people early, we can treat them early, and hopefully we have better health outcomes right after that. Hopefully that answers the question. Oh, definitely. And I was watching the videos because Sweet. I understand that you've partnered with NKCF for the last few years. Yes. Thanks to Taylor. The videos are, are great and they mm-hmm. include different symptoms and risk factors like avoiding eye rubbing and most recently the mental health component of the yeah. disease. And I especially like the video explaining different types of contact lenses. That was right. very clear mm-hmm. and, and really cute and fun. So I'd encourage all of you, there will be a link in the podcast so you can watch the videos, but it's really impressive how these are done. Great. I understand that you work with an international group of graphic artists and optometry students yes. who help develop the script and drawings. Please share the process that you use to create these cartoons. Sure. So I would write scripts to highlight real life implications of these eye diseases. And then specifically to the keratoconus ones that you mentioned, I have Dr. Farida Huron, 
who is a recent contact lens trained OD. Okay, so she was my classmate. And once we have a contact lens video, my like, Farida, this is your topic, right? So Farida will come up with a story because she sees a lot of keratoconus patients. If you think about the mental health one, she wrote the story. And then I go in and edit the story and make it very simple for the animator who has no experience in eye care to be able to bring it to life. It's just a shared Google document so that he can access it. So he he resides in Ghana, and that is because animations are very expensive. And so that is how I can afford this, or we can afford this and keep it sustainable. And that gives someone a job who may otherwise not have a job. He gets to build his portfolio from the work that he does with us. It's just a mutually beneficial kind of agreement. Anyway, we write the story. I try to make it explicit. And whoever writes the story gets to be the character in the story. That person's audio voice becomes the voiceover in the story. So that's why we have so many different characters. Once he creates the animation, he sends it back to us. We review it. And then there's a decent amount of back and forth that goes on to make sure that we are not misinforming the public, making sure that what we want to portray is exactly what is portrayed in the video. And then once we are content with what he has produced, then we put it on YouTube and then disseminate it on social media, be it Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok. TikTok is not that robust yet, but basically... It will be. Yes. But basically, we put it on YouTube and disseminate it over social media and just hope that it gets to the people who need to hear about these things. And actually, if I'm not wrong, the Keratoconus ones have received a decent amount of questions, right? There are people who, like the public, who will come on and ask questions. And so I think it's doing what it was intended to do, which is to educate the public and hopefully prompt some questions and then, yeah, just educate them. (laughs) Excellent. And I love all the pictures in the background of NKCF and World Keratonis Day. Yes. They're so friendly and cute too. Yeah. Thank you. And we came up with, um, you mentioned poptometry, which is basically a word that I made up, piecing out public health and optometry together. And so you would see that in some of the videos, you would have hashtag poptometry, hashtag cherish eyesight, creating words that basically don't exist, but we will make them exist kind of thing. Yeah, that's that. Oh, it's great. So if people want to learn more about Cherish Eyesight or watch the videos you produced for NKCF, where should they go? We have our website, which is cherisheyesight.org. You would find all the information there. Now, if you want to watch the videos, YouTube would be the first place to go to. We have the YouTube channel. As as soon as you search cherisheyesight.org, you would find all the videos that we have put out there. And then aside from that, we are currently working on an app, like a phone app, that people can easily get the app. And that app will actually tailor the videos to the individual's interests. So if somebody's interested in keratoconus, then all the videos that would be populated once the person goes into the app would be keratoconus. So I look forward to that becoming a thing, but that's one way that we are going to try to disseminate this information. So on the website, YouTube, an app that would be coming out soon, and then all the social media platforms, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And then we have an email as well, which is simply cherisheyesight at gmail.com. Fantastic. So not that you have any free time in your life at all, but I understand (laughs) that you're a practicing doctor. Right. 
And <laughs> in your practice, do you see many patients with keratoconus? Well, I started work in September of this year, so it hasn't been too long, and I am yet to see a keratoconus patient. So I haven't seen, a, I know, <laughs> I am yet to see a keratoconus patient, and I did my residency at the VA as well. If you think about the population, I did not see keratoconus at the VA, so I haven't been able to preach the gospel on keratoconus to anyone yet. But yeah, if I get somebody, I'll be able to explain to them exactly what the condition is and what resources are available to them for them to be able to get the best vision possible. Excellent. What, what type of practice are you in? It's an ODMD practice. So I'm seeing a lot of post-ops. So hopefully that explains to you why I haven't seen a lot of keratoconus. <laughs> I'm seeing a lot of disease and a lot of post-op cataract care and things of that nature. Okay. Yes. <laughs> well, you will see lots of people with keratoconus, I'm sure. I, yes. <laughs> yes. I will have a different answer next time. Exactly. <laughs> we'll do it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. definitely. So the last question is, what do you think that we can do to improve access to eye care, uh, both in this country and beyond in the world? Well, I think it's a hard question, okay? Because when you think about the barriers to care, cost is a huge one. And then depending on where you are, you are talking about the eye care professionals available in those vicinities. And then you talk about transportation to these areas. These are the main barriers that people face, which is not an easy solution because no one person can solve it. So bringing up my public health, let's say that you have a public health person who is much involved in policy. That person involved in policy, also interested in eye care, can lead so that we can come up with policies and fight for costs associated with scleral lenses, costs associated with GP lenses. I feel like we have to delve more into public health. And again, I may be biased, right? And figure out the different tactics that public health uses to address these barriers that I have listed. And some of them could be just taking the care to people instead of you waiting for them to come to you for care. And we do a little bit of that as a profession, going to different places to do screening. So that very much addresses access. When I was in optometry school, we would go to schools and do screening, and you would identify a child with amblyopic factors. Now, you would write a letter to the parent for them to follow up with an OD outside of the school, Mm -hmm. and then they don't do it. So even though you sent the care to people, now there is the lack of motivation to actually do it. And some have given reasons like, oh, they don't believe the results from the school screening. But again, if you don't go to the eye doctor, that would never be found out. And then we go back the next year and find the same students with WOPIC factors and the problem still persists. What we could do there, once again, is education. If that parent knew the magnitude of what they are dealing with, that if this child does not get the glasses that they need and indeed becomes amblyopic, getting 20-20 vision in that eye for the rest of that person's life may not be achievable. I feel like the basic thing that we can address, which is what I'm trying to do and hopefully get buy-in from a lot of ODs, is to educate, educate, and educate, and then do our best to take the care to people. And taking the care to people is not enough if you don't educate because they are not going to follow up. So 
coming back to the beginning, it's I feel like we should educate because that is a simple thing to do that each OD can do without having to involve the government. But all the other barriers are hard. Not that we cannot address them. They are just barriers that you cannot address as an individual. Exactly, exactly right. I've been fortunate to Uh lecture in many countries around the world Uh and have seen some of these access barriers and also see them here in this country as well. Certainly. Well, thank you so much for all the work that you're doing and sharing the role of optometry in public health and global health. For all of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us on Clearly KC. Please listen to all the episodes of our podcast on Podbean or your favorite podcast app to subscribe and get future episodes. For now, I am Dr. Melissa Barnett. Please join us next time on Clearly KC.